This is Positively Farming Media. Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. So one thing I've been interested in starting for quite some time now, actually, is vermicomposting or worm farming or composting with worms. Whatever you want to call it, composting with worms is a fantastic way to get rid of any food scraps out of your kitchen while creating a beautiful soil amendment for your garden. Now, the only reason I haven't tried it before was because, honestly, I really don't need one more thing around here that needs to be managed between the gardens and the livestock and multiple businesses, pets, household duties, committees, markets, yada, yada, yada. I just really don't need to be adding anything else to my plate. So why do I feel like I need a worm bin? Well, we have a giant compost pile already that we manage, plus what we bring in from off-site. But in the winter, there's not much activity going on in that main pile. Yes, the center of the pile is still cooking, but I'm not turning it in the cold. So anything that gets added to the pile in the wintertime just isn't breaking down. It's just sitting there until the weather warms up. So I think that having a worm bin in the basement where it can be easily accessed would be a great way to get those scraps from the kitchen a purpose much more quickly than if we're adding them to the big pile outside. So I started doing my research and started talking to people who've been worm composting, and it turns out there's not a ton of management that needs to go into managing a worm bin. It also doesn't smell, which was something else I was worried about since I need to have it in the house in the winter so it doesn't freeze. I've got the info now, and I've got plans now, and so it's time to take the leap. And of course, I'm going to share what I've learned with you. So if you've been on the fence about composting with worms, or maybe you have no idea what in the world I'm talking about, this episode is just for you. Let's dig in. Hey, I'm Karen. I started gardening years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard, then moved to a five-acre lot outside city limits and expanded that garden to half an acre. What started as a way to provide for my family turned into a love for digging in the dirt and providing for others. Slowly, my husband and I built our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm through lots of trial and error and successes and failures. Eventually, I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, and along the way, I discovered there is power in food. So I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. This podcast is all about helping you become a better gardener and a better eater. Whether you're a seasoned gardener or have never grown a thing in your life, I want to give you the knowledge you need to get the biggest and best harvest you can. So settle in, grab that garden journal, and get ready to just grow something. So to start this episode, I want to address something that I saw on Instagram and that I thought should be talked about so that there isn't any confusion, especially for beginning gardeners. A couple weeks back, there were two different videos posted on two different Instagram accounts right around the same time, and each one was talking about the best time to harvest tomatoes. Now, the first account was Jess from Roots to Refuge, and she was talking about um, that in order to get the best flavor from your tomatoes, you should harvest them in the afternoon. Take a listen. Want the best flavor out of your homegrown tomatoes? Pick them in the middle of the afternoon, preferably when it's been a couple of days since they've had any rain or water. Picking your tomatoes when it's hot and dry is going to create the greatest concentration of sugars and give you the sweetest flavor. 
Okay, so the other account was Kevin from Epic Gardening, and he was talking about not letting your tomatoes ripen on the vine, but to pick them while they're in the blush stage, letting them finish up inside. So here's Kevin. What if I told you that you don't have to ripen tomatoes on the vine, and it might even be a good idea not to? So here we have a completely unripe tomato. Don't really want to harvest this. We can use it for fried green tomatoes, but that's about it. Over here, you have a more or less fully ripe tomato. It's almost there, and I just took this off the vine. But the real secret is right here. So the way a tomato ripens is from the literal center outwards and from the bottom upwards. So by the time it looks about 30 to 50 percent ripe, it's called the breaker stage. The flavor, especially at 50 percent, is pretty much already there. Ripening it further isn't going to do much good as far as flavor goes, but what it will do is make sure that it stays less fresh once you take it off the plant. Okay, so <laughs> now... I can see how a gardener, especially a beginning gardener, could be totally confused by this if they also happen to follow both of these accounts. So who's right? Look, just like about everything else in gardening, the answer is it depends. I mean, technically, they're both right. It just depends on your gardening style and how much you're harvesting and then how you intend to use that harvest. So if you're picking a few tomatoes for that night's meal, then yes, you can absolutely leave those tomatoes on the vine to ripen and then pick them in the afternoon after the heat of the day has been on them and you will have a more intense flavor. Why? There are all kinds of components to a tomato that give it its flavor. Oxygen, nitrogen, sulfur-containing compounds, ketones, alcohols, aldehydes, and there's at least 13 other components affecting the aroma, which also affects the tomato's flavor. Cooler temperatures suppress the production of all of these compounds. The heat of the sun activates them. But it's not just the sun. According to a study published by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, dropping tomatoes into a 123-degree Fahrenheit water for five minutes helps to improve the aroma and the flavor of the tomato drastically. So the hot water-treated fruit actually produced higher concentrations of these chemicals in the tomato. So you can see how picking a fully ripe tomato straight from the vine in the warm afternoon sun is going to make it taste better. But what this also means is that tomato isn't going to last very long on your counter. It's fully ripe, and the heat of the day was trapped in it when it was picked, which means it's going to start degrading very quickly. If you have a ton of tomatoes that are ripe and you plan to preserve them, then go ahead, pick them in the afternoon and process them immediately. They're going to taste amazing. But if you're using them for fresh use and you're getting too many at once, this is where we get to the other way to harvest. So if you're harvesting a lot of tomatoes and you can't get to them fast enough before they go bad, you might want to be harvesting them when they're about 30 to 60% blushed at that breaker stage. Yes, tomatoes that are fully mature and only slightly colored can absolutely be picked and brought into the house to finish ripening. The ideal temperature for this is around 68 degrees Fahrenheit. The warmer it is, the faster it's going to ripen. The cooler it is, the slower the process goes. This is kind of why you can pick all of your green tomatoes at the very end of the season before frost hits and then store them in a cool place and they will slowly ripen up for you over a few months. That fruit is mature. It just needs some of that heat that we talked about to activate those chemicals that cause the ripening process. And that happens as soon as the tomato starts to break that color. 
Now, the other reason you might want to try this technique is if you have a lot of pests trying to eat your tomatoes. The riper a tomato is, the softer the skin, the easier for insect pests to pierce that skin and get a bite, and the more enticing that tomato is to the critters, like squirrels, who you really don't want to be sharing your tomatoes with. So picking them just as they start to blush or they're about halfway there and then finishing them inside may mean the difference between having a bunch of tomatoes or none at all. So this is where a little bit of experience comes in handy. Try both methods and see what works for you. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Maybe it's somewhere in between. And Jess did put another post out um, earlier than that post that talked about why she vine ripens and the science behind how fruit ripens, talking about the ethylene production and the differences in homegrown versus commercial. So we are all on the same page. But if you only saw those two posts, you'd have to wonder, right? Oh, and that hot water trick I told you about, that was being done on commercial varieties of tomatoes that were picked at the mature green stage for shipping. So if heating a tomato like that can make a significant difference in its flavor, then think about what it can do to your own homegrown tomatoes that just sit at room temperature on the counter to finish up. Just do what works for you. Okay, let's talk worms and compost and worm castings and food scraps and all things vermicomposting. If you're not familiar with what vermicompost is, let's define it. Vermicompost is the product of earthworm digestion and the aerobic decomposition of food waste materials by microorganisms that are in the worm gut. So unlike a backyard compost pile, this process is all done at room temperature. This produces a really rich organic soil amendment that contains plant nutrients and beneficial microorganisms, and we call it worm castings. So how does this happen? Earthworms have teeny tiny little mouths and no teeth. So an earthworm will push its pharynx or its throat out, and it grabs microorganisms and little bits of organic matter and then pulls it back into its mouth. So the food is then coated with saliva and it's pushed down the esophagus into the crop and into the gizzard where it is crushed and ground apart. And since it doesn't have any teeth, this is how that food is broken down. Just like in a chicken, the gizzard of the worm is full of tiny little bits of grit that grind down the organic matter to make it digestible. Then the food moves into the intestine where the food is broken down by digestive enzymes. Some of the result of that is absorbed into the bloodstream for the earthworm to use as fuel and to live, and then the rest of it passes out as worm poop. These are the worm castings, and they are like black gold for your garden soil. Now, this process happens with a lot of different types of worms just naturally out in the wild. But to actively compost with worms, you need specific types. You can't just go dig up a handful of worms from your garden and then put your bin together and call it good. There are over 9,000 species of earthworms, and they fall into two different categories, ansic and epigeic. So ansic worms are the burrowing soil worms. Those are your typical garden worms, the ones that you'll find when digging in the dirt, or the ones that you'll see out on the pavement after a heavy rainfall. Epigeic worms, on the other hand, are the ones that dwell on the, the surface. 
These are the type of worms that are required for worm composting and worm farming operations. There are only seven species of these epigeic worms that are suitable for vermicomposting, and the most common of these is Asinia fetida, otherwise known as the red wiggler. So your typical soil-dwelling worms, the ones that we see in the garden, do not process large amounts of food waste, and they don't reproduce well in confined spaces. Red wigglers are preferred because they reproduce really rapidly, and they live well in community with each other, and they tend to remain at the surface while feeding. This last tidbit of information is important to know and explains one part of why I was a little confused about how worm bins work at first. More on that in a minute. But just know these worms are top feeders. So in nature, Icinia fedida is found in moist, organic-rich environments like livestock manure or under decomposing logs out in the woods. Now, since you likely don't want to be hunting worms for your bin, and you wouldn't really know for sure what species of earthworms you have if you find any, you should buy red wigglers from a worm grower to start your bin. Red wigglers are hermaphrodites. They have both male and female reproductive parts, but it still requires two worms to mate and reproduce. From what I've read, for a typical home worm bin setup, you're going to want to start with around a thousand worms. This is like a pound of worms. Under ideal conditions, a worm bin population can double about every two months. Now, I mentioned that vermicomposting takes place at room temperature. Well, this is because red wigglers like conditions kind of like what we do. They eat and reproduce best at temperatures between 55 and 85 degrees Fahrenheit, or 12.8 to 29.4 Celsius. So you need to locate your bin somewhere in a dark location that stays in this temperature range with minimal fluctuations. Um, it's not can't be in a place where it might freeze or become excessively hot during the summer. Basements are typical. Under a kitchen sink would work fine. Um, a garage, if you live in a climate that doesn't freeze or that you have a garage that's climate controlled a little bit, you just want to keep them comfortable and they'll pretty much do the rest. Now, worms do their work best with the fewest disturbances as possible, kind of like, you know, beneficial neglect. They don't like the light, so every time you pop open that lid, they're going to stop feeding and they're going to seek shelter down below the surface again. I mean, with that being said, they still need food and water. Uh, most of their moisture is going to be supplied through the food waste, which you can add more moisture by using a spray bottle because that is an important component to them eating and breeding. So let's talk the basics of how to set up a worm bin. There are a bunch of different types of bins that can be used to, to raise earthworms. Some of the more common ones are just plastic bins of various sizes. They can be made of wood. Um, you don't want to use cedar because it's got those antimicrobial properties. Um, but, you know, there's commercial bins that you can purchase. I've seen bins made from those um, one to two inch thick styrofoam shipping lugs. Those are a good uh, alternative to plastic. In fact, they have a, an added advantage of having some better insulation. A lot of the time you can get those for free from like pet supply stores, or if you order frozen meat online that gets shipped to you, they're often shipped in these, these containers. So you can get those for free. Um, but the typical setup that I've seen for doing vermicomposting on a small scale at home is 
the three bin system. So in these systems, you have a bin on the bottom that has no holes. It doesn't even have to be all the way up um, as, as tall as the next one. It could be kind of short. Um, it's there to catch the leachate, which is the liquid that leaches out as the worms are doing their job, or actually while it, it's waiting for the worms to do their job. Some people will call this worm compost tea or worm tea, but that's actually a different thing altogether, so don't be confused. Worm tea or worm compost tea is a tea made from steeping or brewing the vermicompost or the worm castings after you've removed it from the bin. It is a great thing for your plants. It's highly aerobic. It's very good. The leachate is a dark liquid that's essentially the water or the moisture that's being released from the cells of the decomposing food scraps that are in the bin. So think about what happens if you leave a lonely head of lettuce at the back of your refrigerator crisper for too long. It starts to break down and it becomes liquidy, right? That's what's coming out of the worm bin. So while the worms are doing their job, the stuff that's breaking down while waiting to be consumed is leaching off this liquid. So as water passes down through the worm bin, it can pick up all sorts of unstable metabolites and you can end up with various harmful compounds in that leachate. It's an anaerobic product without oxygen and it's got a high concentration of microbial activity, but it may not be the best microbial activity. You can actually pick up certain pathogens because it hasn't passed through the worm's digestive system yet. It doesn't mean that it's not good for plants. It can be, but you may not want to risk putting it directly on any edible plants just in case there are pathogens. You might choose to use it on your non-edible plants, like your trees and your flowers, or just dilute it really, really well with at least a two-to-one ratio of water before using it in the garden and then only use it at the soil level. Or you can put it in your compost pile if you have a hot compost that will break down pathogens. If it smells at all, do not use it. Put it down the drain. So, okay, one bin at the bottom to catch this leachate. You can install a little spigot for this at the bottom if you want to make it easier on yourself, but it will need to be drained periodically regardless of how you decide to use it. The next bin can be taller or larger than the bottom bin, or they can be the same size, but it should be well ventilated, containing a bunch of different holes on the bottom, and then at least two rows of holes along like the bottom half and middle area of the bin. This is where you put the bedding and the worms and where you add the food scraps. Okay, now this is where I was super confused until I learned that these worms are top feeders. I couldn't figure out what the third bin was for. I always thought you sort of like sifted the worms out and then moved them to a new bin when the compost was finished and you start all over again. It turns out the third bin is for them to migrate themselves to the new bin. You don't have to do much at all. So over time, the worms are going to recycle the bedding that you started off with and all that food that they get into worm castings, and they also use those castings as their bedding. So once the second bin is full of all of the lovely digested materials the worms have created, then you add the third bin on top. This bin should look exactly like the second bin with all the same holes in the bottom and on the sides. You put it on top of the finished compost and then you start adding new food scraps and the wet newspaper like you're starting a brand new bin. The worms will move up into the new bin through the holes in the bottom seeking out the new food. 
Now, if they feel uncomfortable at any stage, they can always go back down into the container below after they've finished eating. But soon enough, they're going to have converted enough food in that third container into worm castings to allow them to stay permanently in that top bin. So if you give them a few days to get set up in their brand new little condo, then you can remove the second bin and use the compost without having to sift out any worms. Then you just give it a good scrub and get it ready to use again once the other bin gets full. Why does this happen? Because they're top feeders. <laughs> they're going to gravitate to the topmost layer to find their food. This is genius, right? So what size bins should you use? Well, it's entirely up to you. I've seen tiny systems made from like plastic shoe boxes. Um, I've seen bins created from five gallon buckets stacked inside each other, all the way to those giant black storage tubs. Evaluate the level of food waste you have coming out of your kitchen and how much space you have to work with and start from there. I think the recommendation I saw was like an 18 inch by 24 inches um, by 18 inches deep for a typical kind of startup setup. And I guess that is supposed to be able to sustain a starter pack of about a thousand worms and allow for space for reproduction. So once you've created your three bins, you want to set up the new worm home. So set that second bin inside the first and then fill it about halfway with moist shredded newspaper to use as bedding and then add a handful of garden soil, which will inoculate the bin with microorganisms and the sand and grit that the worms use in their gizzard to grind their food. And then you add the worms. So worms can be purchased online in bulk. Like I said, from what I've seen, beginners can get away with a thousand worms for new bins, but anything less than that is going to take more time to digest the food waste. Put your worm bin in its permanent space and start feeding your new composting residents. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So what do we feed our worms? Well, you feed worms, leftover fruits and vegetables, and other kitchen scraps. Um, worms will eat almost anything that you would put in a traditional compost bin. Coffee grounds, crushed eggshells, plant waste, tea leaves. Um, you do want to avoid any meat or dairy products, and you may want to avoid garlic and onions and citrus, and anything that's fatty, oily, or has been fermented. It's not that they won't break those things down, but you may start to get an unwanted odor while you wait for it to be consumed. And apparently citrus in large amounts can actually be hazardous to your worms. So a thousand worms can eat about a half a pound to a pound of scraps per day. But you don't want uncomposted or undigested foods sitting open in the bin. That's where you start to attract fruit flies and maybe start to get those smells that I was worried about. So to help prevent smells or pests, you place the food under the shredded newspaper when you add the scraps. And then one tip to prevent overfeeding is to feed small amounts every week with each amount being placed in a different location in a circle around the bin. So start with like a cup of scraps 
every few days to a week and then see how they do, see how quickly they get through it. This will also allow you to see how well they're digesting the food from the previous feeding, how fast it goes, and if there's anything that they're not consuming. So in general, worms will consume a wide variety of food materials, but you want to be sure not to provide too much of any one material at any one feeding. You may also see that the worms are choosing favorites. Worms taste through their skin, and I've seen people report that their worms gravitate toward the sweet stuff in the bin, and then they leave the other stuff to the end. <laughs> I mean, they're, I guess they're not so much different from us. They also apparently like coffee grounds a lot, so my worms are going to be extra happy for sure. So you add the dirt and the moist paper to the bin until the worms have made enough compost to use to cover the new food scraps that you get. So as you're adding the, the food scraps, make sure they're being covered either by, you know, the, the shredded paper or by the already existing compost in there. And then every time you move to the next bin, you want to have moist shredded newspaper um, to add to it so that the food waste is always going to be covered. This is going to prevent those fly nuisances and reduce the issues with the odors. Just make sure there's always a few inches of some sort of material that you can tuck the new food under so you don't have a problem. And like anything else, we can all read and research, but we're not going to know what we're doing until we actually get in there and do it. Which is why, on Friday, I have a special guest for you. Lauren Kane with Elm Dirt will be here to talk about vermicomposting. Elm Dirt is a local company here in the Kansas City area that produces natural and very effective plant food and garden soil additives. And the basis of all of their products is worm castings. I've been using their products all season long from the greenhouse all the way out into the gardens. And if you follow me on Instagram, you've likely seen me put their specials up in my stories. I got a chance to check out their worm farm and I asked Lauren if she would come talk to you about how to start your own worm farm at home just like she did when they were first starting out. And the story about how they started is definitely something that you want to tune in for. It is a great story. So if you enjoyed this episode or you got something out of it, please share it with someone that you know who has been interested in getting started with vermicomposting and maybe was a little intimidated by it. Or share it with someone who knows nothing about worm farming but probably should. And if you decide to start your own worm farm, let me know. Tag me on social media with pictures of your setup. And as soon as mine is ready to go, I will post about it so you all can see it too. So until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden and maybe a worm farm. And we'll talk again soon. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. For more information about today's topic, head on over to JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com for all the episodes, show notes, blog posts, discount codes, and more. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. You can also head to Facebook and join a community of other gardeners asking questions and sharing their experiences in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. And if you want to support this show even further, head to Patreon.com slash JustGrowSomething to find out how. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning, keep growing, and we'll talk again soon.
If you've listened to this podcast for any length of time or seen my posts on Instagram, you know my husband and I are both former military and that we have a serious coffee habit. We also like to support other veteran-owned businesses, so Black Rifle Coffee is our coffee of choice. Not only do they have great coffee and merch, but they give back to military and first responders with every purchase. If you'd like to support this podcast and another veteran-owned business while also supporting your own coffee habit, head to JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com slash coffee to save 20% when you join the Black Rifle Coffee Club. Give them a try with no commitment you can cancel at any time. That's JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com slash coffee for 20% off your coffee club subscription.